Hello and welcome to the NHS Scotland Global Citizenship Podcast. Um, I'm from Rutherford. I'm a Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellow working with the Global Citizenship Team. And I'm Colonde Kassengele. I'm a Registrar in Public Health uh, working with the Global Citizenship Team. Thank you. So we're here today with the, the three finalists of the Global Citizenship category of the NHS Health Awards to have a bit of a chat about the projects that they've been involved in, the challenges that they faced, um, and to hopefully pique your interest in some global citizenship work. Um, so let's introduce our uh, finalists. So first of all, uh, we have Dr. Leslie Crichton. Um, she's a consultant anaesthetist who works in NHS Tayside, um, and she's been working um, in the Zambia Anaesthetic Development Programme, um, including a couple of years where she moved herself and her whole family there to get the program going so i'm looking forward to hearing about that thank you and we also have uh, dr penelope granger uh, also at nhs tayside uh, who's a specialty um, uh, dentist uh, for her work with dandy dental school to provide uh, dental care and oral uh, hygiene education uh, on the island of uh, tristan de Cunha. so I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this island so i'm really looking forward to actually getting some perspective in terms of uh, where that is yeah, we need to get the map out. <laughs> um, and uh, the third and final of the finalists and the winner in the category, um, we have Mr Stuart uh, Watson, who is a very recently retired consultant plastic surgeon in Clare, Glasgow and Clyde. Um, but don't worry, he's going to continue on with the, the global citizenship work. Um, he's worked in multiple different countries, mainly in Africa over the last um, 20 or so years. Um, been involved in teaching, training, um, and a, a real partnership with the, the partner countries. So we're really looking forward to hearing all about that. So I think just to get kicked off, we'll um, ask each of you just to tell us a little bit about um, where you work, um, what it is that you do, um, and some of the partners that you work with in Scotland, um, and, and, and go from there, if that's all right. Um, so we'll, we'll kick off with Stuart. Um, can you... Give us an insight into what you've been up to over the many years of, of global citizenship work that you've done. Thanks, Fiona. Um, I've actually just retired after being consultant burns and plastic surgeon in Glasgow for 26 years. And I first went to work in Ghana and to teach there in 1997, so 25 years ago, when they had a conference there that they invited some of us to go out and teach on. And the, the reason for that connection is that some of my predecessors in Glasgow helped to establish a plastic surgery service in Accra in Ghana. And famously, um, a surgeon called Jack Mustardi um, approached the president of Ghana, Jerry Rawlings, to ask him to set up a unit. So that was where my interest in terms of practical side of things started from. I'd always wanted to work in Africa to help develop services there. Um, but prior to that, there hadn't really been a clear opportunity. And it's only really as consultant that time came available to, and, con and contacts became available to work along with colleagues. The most important thing that allowed me to start working more there was that I had a trainee who came to work with us in Glasgow 
as part of our relationship. And I worked with him between 2003 and 2007. And he was an outstanding individual, still is, um, called Apuka Ampuma. And he and I became close friends and we worked closely together. So I think one of the most important things I would say for other people listening is that if you have partners whom you can work with in the co- in the country that you are um, visiting or building a relationship, you have partners whom you can trust and who whose needs you can try to address, that is the thing that I feel has been most important about my working with colleagues in Africa. That personal um, connection. Yeah. And respect for what they are undertaking and respect for their hopes and aspirations. I think there is a risk in working in Africa of taking our aspirations and our hopes and our opinions and applying them to the local situation. Mm. And that, that can sometimes work very well, but equally it can cause issues. Whereas I think if one has a very open, honest relationship with the local professionals and tries to actually address their needs and hopes, that is a good recipe for success. So really following on from building a relationship with Apoku, I started visiting Ghana regularly since 2007 and probably been there about 30 times. And the, the in keeping with the colleagues who helped set up the unit there, the very, very strong emphasis has been on teaching and training rather than on delivering treatments. Yeah. And that's not to say that delivering treatments is not a hugely important aspect of global citizenship work in poorer countries or less well-developed countries, because there are many places where it's the only way to help local people when there is minimal infrastructure and minimal local training. But Ghana is quite an advanced society from a social development and in particular educational point of view and their educational advancement is the same as ours really. Um, So the key aspect of developing services there is to train and to teach and to facilitate local learning rather than to deliver care. So that's what I've been involved in there. And then because of being involved in that, I also became um, drawn into working with a group in Malawi, supporting the Burns Unit in Blantyre, Malawi. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years as well, and more recently associations with Sierra Leone. And this has then led to various um, areas of teaching, mainly using internet-based teaching methods around the world. But the, the bedrock of my involvement has been this relationship working with the unit in Accra and Ghana. Mm-hmm. And so you've, yeah, you've had to adapt over recent times with online learning and as yeah, we all have good. worked out how to use web webinars and all of that sort of stuff. So it's great to see that it's continuing. And, and you said um, that you found it difficult before you were a consultant to get involved. Do you try and encourage others to get involved now too? Yeah, I'd, 
We've been very fortunate because some of our trainees have been able to go on the trips um, in the last six years and that has been great for them and I would emphasize that that is more for their training than to deliver care and I think one of the historical issues about outreach work has been that people who are inadequately trained perhaps go and work and deliver care and again that is often better than nothing but with many countries now having their own established healthcare systems I think it's important that as many of the people who go to do outreach work are fully trained or are actually going for their own training rather than having untrained people going to deliver work that they wouldn't do at home. So a, a general rule is that you should always be doing something that you are comfortable with doing at home. Um, there are exceptions to that um, where you're working with colleagues, local colleagues who have expertise, and if there's time I can talk about that. But our trainees and nurses have gone to help with teaching, um, but also to learn themselves. And it's a great way to get other people involved and interested in global health by getting them in early doors. Um, thank you. Um, so I think we'll uh, move on um, to you, Leslie, if that's all right, just to hear a bit about um, the same sort of thing, where, where you've worked, what sort of things you've been involved in, um, just to get a, a basic understanding of things that you've done over the time. Thanks, Fiona. Well, I'm an anaesthetist by trade. I've been a consultant for about 10 years and I work, I'm based in NHS Tayside, um, where I've been based again for about 12 years. And I have always been interested in global citizenship. Um, but like most people, for quite some time, I was consumed with the mechanics of getting through a training programme and, you know, all the competencies yeah. that come along with that. All the boxes to tick. Exactly. Um, and then after that, and well, during and after that, um, then the being busy with having a family. So I have three children. So about the stage where my um, youngest child was about three or four, um, we saw my husband and I a window of opportunity, I think, to go and live and work somewhere else while the kids were relatively small and still quite portable. Yeah. Um, and so it was very much a concerted effort to go and look for um, somewhere different to live and work for a couple of years for me. And that place ended up being Zambia. Um, and the reasons for that were that it was very close to Zimbabwe, which is where my husband grew up and where we still have family. And I've been, the kids have been, well, a couple of them had been in the past. Um, and then really just a, a chance encounter with um, a man called Ian Wilson, who worked and lived in Zambia and is an anaesthetist and is Scottish by chance um, years ago, um, who spoke at a conference and I chatted to him at the end and he put me in touch with the people who were leading what is called the Zambia Anesthesia Development Programme or ZADP which is a partnership which um, was already established when I got in touch with them and had been set up initially between the Ministry of Health in Zambia in about 2011, I think. 
um, and some anaesthetists in the UK to set up an anaesthesia training programme in the country for physicians because before then there was none and all of the doctor anaesthetists, and that's an important distinction which we'll come back to in a minute, um, came from or had been trained out of outside of the that's country. Right. Um, and I'm, I say physician anaesthetist because much of the anaesthesia in Zambia is administered very, very successfully by non-physician mm. anaesthetists, so clinical officers or nurse anaesthetists. Um, so I, I, I became involved at about the time where the programme had been running for about five or six years. It was a Master's of Medicine, so underwritten by the University of Zambia, postgraduate programme training in anaesthesia. So the first cohort of anaesthetists had already come through. So there was already a good cohort of trained anaesthetists there. So when I went, there was no need for me to teach anyone how to do anaesthesia. That was all the expertise was already in the country. Um, and what I rapidly realized, I think, was that my role was to take almost help to support it going on to the next stage and to support my colleagues um, to move from being recently qualified anaesthetist to then being becoming the trainers and being the one you know, almost the community of practice for anaesthesia mm. so kind of country. a rapid change in what you were expecting yes yeah, just change yeah. up and go with it yeah definitely a sort of yeah definitely being part of a very quickly evolving thing um and having to be adaptable to that. Yeah. So yeah. So taking a while to realise what my role was as somebody from a high, you know, a high income country and all of that. And um, so I was lucky enough to be there. All of us, we were there for two years from 2017 to 2019. And since then, I'm still involved. Um, I've been back once since then, but mostly because of the obvious reason, haven't been, have mostly been supporting from abroad since then. Yeah. Oh, what an adventure. How exciting. Hearing the exciting stories are the things that, that, that get you involved. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we'll probably go in a bit more into all those um, little bits later on. Um, but I think we'll we'll ask uh, Penny now, if that's all right, just the same sort of thing, because um, we're all very interested to hear where it is that you work, um, one of the re most remote islands in the world. Um, so just to hear a bit about that and, and the work that you do, if that's all right. Um, hi, I'm Penny Granger, and thank you very much for inviting me on today to, to speak. Um, I'm sort of a, a dentist, um, and I've come to working on Tristan de Cunha and being involved in Tristan de Cunha from a, a slight, a slightly different, a different road. Um, we had been living in Sweden um, when my daughter was born, and I'd done quite a lot of work um, in the Antarctic, the British Antarctic Survey. And obviously the chances to go there with a, a young daughter were almost impossible. So I then had a chance meeting and a chance conversation with someone who'd said, have you ever heard of Tristan de Cunha? And like most people within dentistry, um, it's part of the epidemiological studies for caries. So it was a, a place that I'd heard of, but I certainly couldn't pinpoint on a map. So I then found out a little bit more about it and then discovered the connections between Dundee Dental Hospital and um, Tristan de Cunha, which had been there for about 20 years. 
So when I first visited Tristan, it was very much um, as the visiting dentist to go and carry out as much treatment as I could in the three week period that, that I was there. So I, I think the first that visit pretty long days was then. very much. Oh, it, it, yeah, it put the NHS into, uh, it paled into significance. Yeah, so it was, it was long days. And because there's only an annual visit by a dentist, um, there's quite a lot of work needs to be done in a very short period of time. And because you are restricted time-wise by a shipping schedule, because you go in by ship and come out by ship, you literally had three and a half weeks to see the entire island and do any treatment that was required. And I was quite aware that a background in public health, that there was a big opportunity for prevention to kind of be plugged rather than just going for curative treatment. So in discussion with the staff that were on the island, we started to think about potential for a lot more preventive work to be going on. Um, and then that's when we started to establish stronger connections um, with the dental hospital in Dundee, which I then subsequently came to work for um, three or four years ago. Um, and those connections were based around trying to see if we could get training for local staff because mm -hmm. the, the two members of staff that were there within the dental department had been locally trained or had been trained by whichever dentist had gone in. Um, and a chance to sort of improve the service, we managed to bring um, Michelle, one of the dental nurses, over to Dundee for a period of training, which was just fantastic. And then to have her go back into the island and be able to subsequently see her over a period of 10 years and seeing how her skills developed and how that was rolled out in the community in Tristan de Cuna. So um, I, I think I can very much echo that it's very much these chance conversations that you have that kind of take you down, down these roads and take you to these incredible places. Um, yeah. And like Leslie, my, my daughter has been dragged along every time. <laughs> every time I've gone. So she, um, does she, I think she appreciates it. Yeah, she hates traveling by ship because she gets quite seasick. So the uh, the puppy that I mentioned earlier was the latest little bit of bribery to get her in there. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's, it's amazing when you can bring together your kind of love of work and working with communities and other people but taking your family along with you as well because i think yeah. you're very much guilty of having very separate lives we have our work lives and our home lives and it's not so often that we manage to marry them together yeah definitely feel that and i, I would love to see your family photo albums um i bet they look so exotic and um and great fun and it's it's really nice to hear um through all of your stories about that personal connection, those chance meetings, but also, <clears throat> also the the importance that you all put on um, those connections to train um, the the practitioners in the the countries that you're working in to to leave that sort of legacy of um, improving care um, and. It's, that's really inspiring to hear. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think we're going to yeah. 
pass you on to Kalondi for a wee bit of more questions. Yeah, no, thanks, Fiona. Thanks, everyone. Really exciting. I, I was so tempted in so many times just like follow on questions, but it's, uh, thankfully Fiona asked all the questions I wanted to to, to ask. Um, yeah, I suppose for, for me, it's um, it's just kind of thinking, I mean, you've all touched on your journey about becoming a volunteer in your health partnerships. And, and one of the things I was interested in about in, in that, you know, there'll be many events on the wave, but in just a minute or two, um, can you tell me the most important thing about um, how you got from where you started to where you are now? Um, and and if, if we start with um, uh, Penny, I'll, I'll just kind of reverse the order. Uh, um, I, I think from my perspective, I've probably done quite a lot of work overseas with various various posts and various jobs and very various voluntary organisations. So for me, it's um, all about the kind of connections that you've kind of made as you go along. I, I wouldn't say it's nepotism, but you somebody can spark an idea in you which you can let which you can then follow and um i think remembering that none of us work in isolation we're all part of a team and that is hugely important that we can have our own personal desires to do things but we do need to be supported by consultants and a huge number of people kind of behind us even when we're delivering care um, and i think that's probably one thing that i've taken out of um the the work that i've done so far no thank thank you very much uh penny because i think again that just highlights the importance of of building those those networks um and 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 really ma making the most of the opportunities that kind of present themselves so, so no that that's really inspiring uh leslie over to yourself the most important thing um I think uh, for me has been the ability to shut up and listen um, and <laughs> I say that referring back to what we were talking about before about um, the priorities and where I fitted in and what I could offer to help with not were not necessarily what I thought they would be and I think that I imagine that's true of all health partnerships and what I think is really important is that the, the agenda is not mine to set um, so for me shutting up and listening to what was important to the people in the place where I was and making sure that what I and my my um, colleagues were doing was supporting that and not supporting what I thought was important. Um, and I'm lucky in that I'm someone who's more likely to be listening than talking anyway. So maybe that's one of my skills. But um, yeah, just listening and making sure that priorities are not the priorities that I've set necessarily. No, that's that's excellent, and I think it's a skill I'm definitely learning. That aspect of shutting up and listening, as they say, shut it and listen. Um, so, and I, and I think you you spot on that aspect that aspect of 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 making sure that actually, um, and and you've all touched on it that you listen to the priorities of the country that you're working in it, you know it's just like if you imagine someone coming here and saying uh, I'm gonna going to do this 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 and that. It has to fit into what we're trying to do and it's the same thing even when we're thinking about within communities so no, that's a really uh, excellent point um and and then over to yourself stuart thank you um i think from my perspective penny absolutely hit the nail on the head what, what she said about um 
team working and my I've been involved with a number of groups primarily starting with a charity which is based in the west of Scotland called Research Africa which built the unit in Ghana and has continued to support that and Research Africa have both funded our projects and given a great deal of practical and moral support. I've also worked with a group in Malawi, the Malawi Burns Trust, and similarly um, have been involved in fundraising with them and in planning um, teaching and training trips with them. And there are wider networks which I've been involved with, which include Interburns, which is an international organization for burn training and service development. Be First, which is a UK um, plastic surgery burns charity for training in, in surgeons and had support also from THET and we've applied successfully for several THET grants over the years. So really using and working with all these partners has made a vast difference to what I've been able to help my colleagues in Ghana and Malawi to achieve. And, and without that sort of support, um, one could achieve a, a tiny fraction of what has been possible. Thank you. No, thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, again, it just kind of highlights that the importance of, you know, no, no one person can do everything on their own. So just the importance of that, the wider support that's there, um, that, that's really encouraging for people to know that uh, there will be people out there to support you. Uh, Fiona, over to yourself. Yeah, teamwork and listening. I think, yeah, I, I agree, Colin. Yeah, I'm definitely working on that listening thing. Uh, <laughs> it's a work in progress. Um, so I guess we probably need to mention uh, the elephant in room COVID over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, everyone's lives have changed. Um, and I imagine that the way that you do your work and um, the, the, the partners in the country that you work in have had to change how they work as well. Um, so I'm just keen to see um, what you've done to overcome the challenges of those changes that you've had to face with COVID. Um, and so I guess we'll just go back the other way. Um, so Stuart, do you want to go first if you can tell us a bit about that? Thank you. So pre-pandemic, most of our training was by visits either from us to Africa or colleagues coming from Africa to here. But um, the COVID period has actually been an opportunity to introduce alternative methods, which we'll use more in the future. And in particular, we've used internet internet-based webinar teaching. Um, in the Cannesburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, we set up um, training sessions, webinars once a week for the first year of the COVID period, and then once every two weeks for the second year. And those have been hugely successful. And they've got, actually extended the reach of our training to many countries around the world. And some of the webinars were getting an audience of about 400 people. Wow. And those included places, war-torn places such as Yemen and Syria. So like many things, what has been a, a problem has actually turned out to be an, an advantage. And we've also worked with other organizations such as BeFirst and Interburns to deliver webinar-based teaching. So that's been a big step forward that the COVID period has brought. And unfortunately, 
we'd hoped to visit Sierra Leone to do some uh, training and infrastructure development work there, and that had to be cancelled recently um, because of the Omicron COVID spike. So we have been severely restricted in terms of new usual activities, but there are ways in which it's been turned to a positive. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I think that everyone getting really on board with the online webinars and um, and lear learning and teaching that way has been actually one of the positives of it of the pandemic and and we've realized actually so much more can be done by that and and that that you could reach such a wide audience um from your from teaching as well was great and i think that's when we had our um conference um online that that was what the experience as well um sorry did you want to come back yeah just to briefly say um one thing that we've done less but proposed to do more is actually to make it more interactive tutorial type teaching and, and as part of the a project that we've got with the Burns unit in Blantyre Malawi this year we hope to actually develop much more interactive internet-based teaching rather than just pure didactic webinar-based teaching so as you implied in your statement um, there's hope that we can actually replace some of the pre-existing visit-based training with web interactive webinar um, web-based teaching thank you okay. sorry to interrupt no, no interrupt away um i do it anyway so i'm happy for anyone to interrupt at any point um yeah and it's great to to be able to be interactive with people from all over the world and to know that you can you can teach and training to improve so much more than just um the the area that you've been working before um so Leslie, I'm keen to hear what's what's changed for um, your the anaesthetic program in Zambia since COVID. Yeah, like Stuart, there have been good things and bad things. Um, the immediate bad thing was that we are so ZADP normally has um, usually anaesthetic trainees from either the UK or Australia or Canada or various other places, usually high income, but not always um, in Zambia helping with the shop floor teaching and that is really to plug the gaps because although there is a cohort of Zambian anaesthetists who are in training roles now there is such a high clinical demand and there are so few numbers that just having extra people to do in theatre training and um, teaching in classrooms as well is really important so when the pandemic started we had to bring all of those trainees out of Zambia and that felt like a massive betrayal mm. um, for everybody, I think, um, particularly because quite soon after that, the Zambian health system was pretty much overwhelmed um, by one or two of the waves. Um, and although having our presence in Zambia wouldn't have made much difference to that, it, it felt like an abandonment. Um, so we then, like Stuart has already talked about, very quickly had to adapt, you know, to be able to keep the training programme going um in a in amongst a pandemic so we very rapidly moved on to online teaching which we've managed to do really quite successfully actually and what and it has been one of the success stories so small group teaching mainly um and that has enabled us to bring on um remote um teaching fellows 
who yeah. can be anywhere in the world and can be involved in the training program in Zambia oh, wow. and, teaching. and we've managed with that model for the last couple of years um, and we might even continue with a sort of hybrid because it works quite well for some people who can't can or don't want to travel but want to be involved yeah um, and we've also managed to run lots of the exams with a sort of really interesting hybrid model so we've done OSCEs which um, medical people will know as object or objective structured clinical examinations where you go around stations and do practical things we've run a couple of those with uh with some of us online and some of us in person um and then i've also and a couple of colleagues have been able to be external examiners for the university of zambia in med exams by being in the room on a computer screen so that has worked incredibly well and i i have liked that a lot because it in some ways i think it's leveled the playing field a bit um because all of a sudden it's not one group of people getting to go to another place, it's everybody meeting yeah. in the middle. So I think in some ways that has been a real positive and it has meant that I've been able to bring lots of my Zambian colleagues to my stuff as well. So I've, for example, I've talked at um, meetings here, you know, our local Grand Rounds meetings, Scottish things, and I've been able to say, well, here's my perspective. Now I'm going to bring on my colleague, Hazel Mumpancha, who's my, my sort of um, co uh, direct colleague in Zambia. And here's what she thinks. So that's been a massive positive i think yeah that's it's a nice inclusive global community it, it, yeah it it's not perfect together. but i think but, that has been a yeah. step in the right direction um and i think the other positives so again there have been lots of negatives but i think one of the other positives is that um it's it's almost allowed hazel my colleague who, dr Mumpancha, who now leads the program in lusaka to almost be able to dictate what she needs articulate that better because she doesn't have anyone in the room interfering with that yeah she's been able to tell us what she needs and we can respond to that rather than the other way around um and it's almost it goes back to that a, listening yeah i think so and it's been a bit of a reset i think for the partnership because you know there's the danger of it just going on without really sitting down and thinking right where are we now how has this evolved what what can we do to support that and is it the right thing um and finally um the other big positive for anaesthesia in Zambia is that COVID has really increased the visibility of anaesthesia and critical care as a specialty in Zambia, because one of the big challenges, I don't know if Colombia agrees with it or this or not, is that it's not a particularly sexy specialty in Zambia and it's very hard to explain to people what anaesthetists do and suddenly having a, a, you know, a COVID intensive care unit um, on the TV, really put the spotlight on anaesthesia. So that that has been a, a very sad bonus for the specialty in the country. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. That it, it has it has elevated the specialty. So I think it's it's a great thing in, in that respect. Yeah, I, I also like that you highlighted um, with the um, online teaching aspect. It can let people who are really keen to be involved in global health work but don't have the capacity or, or, or inclination to travel, but really want to help and, and they can. And it just shows that you don't have to travel to do it. There's lots of ways that you can be involved with, with global citizenship work. Great. Um, and so Penny, I can imagine it was already difficult to get to the, the most remote island in the world. Um, I can't imagine that COVID's made that any easier. Um, what's been your experience over the last couple of years? Um. Yeah, I, I feel my story is one of logistics um, rather than, than anything else. But um, obviously dentistry 
changed completely when yeah. COVID scene because the majority of procedures we do involve um, aerosol generating procedures, so AGPs. So all of a sudden we couldn't do treatment normally. Um, so for us, when we were based in UK or certainly in Scotland in Dundee, um, dentistry just almost stopped completely yeah. until they managed to kind of mitigate some of the risk factors and try to have workarounds so that we could make sure that staff and patients were safe when we started doing AGPs. So that, that was one challenge um, when we were actually working in Dundee. Um, and for Tristan de Cuna, which has stayed COVID-free, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, it is an island that has yet to have any cases of COVID. So I was taking myself COVID-focused to an island that had no COVID. So I was effectively going back to normal dentistry um, where, where I was working uh, when, when we were there. But the, the, the challenges were around logistics of getting to the island because obviously it was yeah. really important that I didn't take COVID in with me or anyone else that went on a ship didn't take COVID with us. So we had to yeah. go through a strict quarantine in South Africa um, and you had to have a negative PCR even before we got on the, the fishing vessel which took us out to the island. Um, and then once on the island, we then had to undertake another two-week quarantine there. So we, I, th I think I ended up taking 38 days to get from Edinburgh home to Tristan de Kuhn and actually my first day wow. of work. But once I actually got there, it was pretty much business as usual um, huh. because we were uh, COVID, COVID clear. Yeah, um, so life at home changed completely, but... But life in Tristan de Cunha actually was more normal than anywhere else. Absolutely. It was like going back to something normal, but I had to do quite a transition to get there. Mm. Um, kind of like logistics in terms of global supplies were a big issue. Um, yeah. And for the first year of the pandemic, we just couldn't get to Tristan de Cunha at all. And then we started planning a visit, um, which then had to be cancelled at the last minute because one of the ships we were due to go in and had actually sank. So that put, paid to us getting there. And then we had to wait for, for fortunately no one, no, no, there was, um, there was no serious injuries and no loss of life when the fishing boat sank. Um, so we then had to move the trip later on, but the logistics of getting supplies to the island were quite challenging because it involves ordering consumables here in UK and having them shipped to Cape Town where they then join a fishing boat to go out to Tristan de Cunha. So because of the supply issues and problems with shipping, it took the best part of seven months to get the supplies there. So it was a bit touch and go as to whether, you know, the dental team were going to turn up, but the supplies were never going to make it. Um, so I think that was one of the big challenges that COVID posed for us getting there. Um, but the, the, there's certainly positives. Um, and again, I think I'll echo both Stuart and Leslie with the being able to use the internet so much more. So during that period, we were uh, supporting the staff on the island with kind of telehealth medicine, 
So they would be taking radiographs and they would be coming, they would email back to Dundee or back to home and then we could give advice to the doctors on the island who could then, with their extended scope of practice, sort of solve the immediate acute problems that were there. Um, and on a teaching front, I took, we took in quite a lot of teaching materials because we did a, lot of, a big chunk of training this mm -hmm. year. But the internet in the South Atlantic just isn't quite there yet to support online learning. We, yeah. we did manage to do one remote consultation with uh, one of the consultants in Dundee, and he's been supporting Tristan de Cuna Orthodontic Services for 20 odd years now. And that was the first time that he actually had a face-to-face -face consultation with one of the patients that he's been treating remotely for so many years so that was huh. that was fantastic that we've managed to at least set up the rudiments of um a sort of telemedicine and telehealth service that can support the islanders so yeah so yeah. good things and and bad things yeah yeah that's um a lot of challenges to get over it sounds like it could almost be a movie plot you know being thwarted at every every stop but um <laughs> but you made it and especially i think given that you know obviously everybody's practice and life changed but as you say with, especially with dentistry it was so up in the air so difficult to get on with your sort of normal work life um that that to get away eventually after all those days to get back to some normal dentistry must have just been a, a sort of surreal experience. Um, great. So I think, I, I guess, over what you're all saying is that actually there's been challenges, but you've all risen to them and everyone has sort of worked together to try and come up with um, solutions. And that, that, you know, when we first started doing the online Zoom quizzes and things and we weren't sure about all that online teaching, that, that that's changed quite significantly over the last couple of years. And, and hopefully that's something that's going to stay and 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 have a wider audience now. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. Let's let's talk a bit more generally then about your um, global citizenship work. Yeah, that's great. Thank thanks, Fiona. Um, I suppose one of the questions I was I was intrigued um, um, penning there when you were when you were talking because one of the things I kept on going in my head is that where is uh, Tristan de Kuna, I, I, I got the impression is close to South Africa, but can you just tell us, you know, roughly where it is? Because um, I don't, I think many people, myself included, uh, would never have heard of it. So can you just give us an indication oh. where that is? It, it's that huge expanse of water between South Africa and South America. So midway through that, so about um, sort of 1700 miles from Cape Town. Um, there's a little group of volcanic islands, um, and that is where Tristan de Cunha is. Oh, fantastic! So at least at least I know now. <laughs> Next time I'm having a we'll, conversation, we'll, we'll quiz you and see if you can point it out on the map well, after this. Well, that's just to make sure. I'll use it as a dinner party uh, conversation where I can say, interesting, does anyone know where this is? And I can I can yeah. sound like the smart one. Prizes um, for the one who gets closest. <laughs> definitely. Um, thanks, thanks, everyone. To, to, it's been really interesting. And I suppose 
one of the things we just want i just wanted to to, uh, to get your thoughts on um you know we've, we've heard about the different aspects of your your your, your work that you're involved in in, in in the number of countries that you've been doing it um but what is it that motivates you in your global citizenship work uh, i mean why do you keep going i mean many all of you have been doing this for a number of years. I, 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 some people will do it for maybe a few months, a, a couple of years, and that's it. But you guys have been doing it for for many, many years. What motivates you, and what what makes you keep going? Um, I'll start with yourself, Leslie. Uh, what motivates me um, is, I think, is the fact that there's so much in it for me. There's. <laughs> Um, I think when I when I first started getting involved with ZDP, I think I still had that sort of white saviory mentality that I had. I had a lot to give, and there was a bit to gain as well. But I was wrong, and I think there is at least as much for me to gain, if not more, and to learn from being involved in something like this than I can ever offer it. Offer the partnership, and just in terms of my my medical skills, my own personal development different ways of seeing and approaching things and we have so much to learn as a health system from the way that other people do things and I think that the, the pandemic has particularly shone light upon that is that maybe we're not as good as we think we are and there's so much to learn so for me it's it's just um, it just offers so much in the way of opportunities for me to learn I think. No, th th thank you very much. That's really, uh, you know, I, I, and I think it just kind of highlights that uh, there's so much that you 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 get from it uh, yourself uh, in in many aspects. Um, you know, other than just that feeling of like doing something good, but there, there's many things that even in your own development that that kind of tends to be underestimated. Um, uh, Stuart, what about yourself? Um, a bit like Leslie's, many, many different things, really. And, and the most important thing is, as she said, really, sort of personal development and fulfillment um, in a very broad sense. Um, simple things are actually going to other countries and getting a hugely enthusiastic response from people who value education more than we do and for whom it's something that is not to be taken for granted in the, the way that we perhaps do in our country but a huge opportunity for for them that enables them to change their own lives and the lives of people around them and also to be truthful sometimes when i'm tired um just having made a commitment to people and not wanting to let those people down, you carry on doing it because of that. So there's a, there's a whole range of different reasons um, which are very much related to one's interaction with other human beings, um, gaining positive experiences back from them, but also not wanting to let them down and wanting to carry on being part of their lives and and the vice versa thank you excellent no, th thank you um it, you know that, that that again just kind of highlights the the broad aspect of uh you know why pe people keep uh keep going um so no, th thank 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 you so much for that and uh, penny 
I think I'll be echoing very much what Leslie and Stuart have said that it's multifactorial your your reasons for going. I, I think the first visit for me was just out of curiosity. It's like where is Tristan de Cunha? But then you start developing relationships with people on the island and you want to see the service develop and you sometimes feel that you can facilitate that. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that when you have long-term involvement, you can have long-term goals because you know that they will be overseen and you can um, take ideas forward. There, there, we had um, an idea that the healthcare facility that was there might not be adequate and perhaps something else could, could be brought in. So through funding from DFID, we managed to build a, a new a new hospital and healthcare facility there, which was absolutely incredible. But I, I think unless you've got a team working together over a long term period, these bigger projects sometimes don't happen. Um, so for me, there's that satisfaction um, and the, the the relationships that you develop with both your patients and the groups that you're working with. Um, I, I I just enjoy that. Yeah. And I still get a giggle every time I mention Tristan de Cunha to people and nobody knows where it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know, certainly got one from, from me because uh, today is the first time finding out. So uh, at least I, I've learned something. You learn something new every day for sure. Uh, uh, before I pass over to uh, to, to Fiona, um, I'm going to go off slightly off tangent. Uh, this is um, one thing that I know I'm curious about, uh, and uh, many listeners will probably feel the same. Um, you know, apart, apart from your travel document, um, I'm just I'm curious in terms of what's the. Can you tell us um, one of the other must-have items in your travel bag? You know, so apart from yeah we get you have to go with the travel documents but what else is a must-have um Stuart. um running shoes and um <laughs> but the, the single most important thing from a practical point of view is backup memory sticks of all the teaching stuff um right. as well as the computer um but no real insights for people people to want wanting to visit other countries from a, a sort of health point of view or anything like that. Running shoes is my main thing. Thank right, you. Yeah, I, I like that. So you're you're keen run. I'll, I'll find out your PBs and see see how far off I, I am from them. Uh, Leslie, I think a uh, free book for the local language of wherever I'm going because I think there's a particular um, I think the word is arrogance of English speakers that everybody else in the world will meet them with, with English and they don't have to bother learning another language. So, And I have made so many friends by embarrassing myself at my attempts to speak whatever language um, is being spoken in the area. So I think, uh, I think we have a, a duty to at least make an effort to try to learn some of the language of the country that we're going to and not just assume everyone's going to speak English to us. Yeah, no, I, think, I think that's so spot on because... You know, I know I've done that myself when I go like to like you you go to Spain or somewhere and you go and you're like, what's going on? How do you not speak English? And it's like, no, no, you know, it's it's you you also it's you have to make the effort. So no, that's that's really that's really good. Um, and uh, Penny, 
Um, I, I, I've been quite blessed that um, uh, English is the, the, the first language spoken, <laughs> interest in Dakuna, so I, no, no language issues. Uh, but for me, I, there's a couple of things that I always take, and one is um, a completely revolting insulated mug with a lid on the top of it, because when you're on a ship, there's nothing nicer than getting yourself out on deck and having a little mug of tea with you. Um, just to enjoy a little five minutes and appreciate your surroundings and kind of where you are. So, yeah, and, and I think my sense of humour, you've got to have a sense of humour when you travel anywhere by ship. <laughs> no, I, 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 could, I couldn't agree more, though I, I don't think I'd be as relaxed um, on the ship any, with all the water, so I'm not sure I'd be using that mug for the purpose that I'd be intended for. <laughs> but I'll pass over to, to Fiona while I get that image out of my head. Uh, Fiona. You need to work on your sea legs, do you? I know, I do, I do. <laughs> it's always that when you've been on the ship for a few days and you get off onto land, but you still sort of feel like you're moving on the ship. Um, so I guess it's just to, to wrap up to say just thank you so much for um, sharing this with us. It's just been really inspiring and interesting to hear about. Um, and I think it's been nice to hear about this, the sort of common themes of, and that you've all said about listening um, to what's wanted rather than what we think uh, we want to bring um, to whatever project that you're doing and working in partnership um, with the country and people there um, to improve their service. Um, and also really important that you that you mentioned, Leslie, about the things that you get from it, that, that you learn and you develop your skills and you bring that back, that enthusiasm and learning um, to your own practice at home. Um, and I think maybe sometimes we don't think about how valuable that is to our NHS and our patients here um, when we can take all those learnings with us. Um, and I suppose the other thing that we've seen is that everyone just needs to chat to everybody that they meet. Those, those chance meetings, those, those chance discussions get you into these opportunities that you might never have thought or heard about. Um, so we just really need to encourage everybody to, to chat to everyone, be curious, um, ask those questions and, and get involved in the, in the projects when you can. And that doesn't always mean going abroad. Um, so thank you so much. I just want to ask if there's any sort of last words that you'd like to, to add on, words of encouragement for anyone listening to get involved or, or any last um, things to say about your projects. Um, Leslie. Um, I think what I would say um, to people is that um, global citizenship doesn't just have to be about going abroad and doing international volunteering. There are so many things that we can do from home, both um, to get involved with international projects, but also there are plenty of things to work on at home as well. You know, So um, if you want to get involved, look around you as well as looking outwards and um, there are plenty of things to fix in our own health systems in our own communities as well as as in other places and thank you for having me oh well thanks for sharing with us um penny anything to add to that um i, I would just like to suggest that people just stay curious and try remember to look outwards as well I think all of our jobs within the NHS can sometimes lead to quite a lot of introspection or looking inwards and just remembering that we're part of a, a global healthcare network and just not sweating this, not, don't sweat the small stuff quite as much. And just um, if there's things that you're interested in doing, 
remember that you can do them. It's it's all possible. Great, thank you. Yeah, we're all part of a bigger global picture, and sometimes, yeah, that perspective is needed, isn't it? Um, Stuart. I would advise people to, if they're interested at all, to seek to go to visit and teach in another country. Um, the nurses, physios, surgeons, anaesthetists who've done it with us, including all the trainees, have really found it a huge, hugely beneficial experience, almost universally. Um, also, I think one of the most important things, I think, is put yourselves in the position of the people whom you are visiting or whom you're working with or whom you're talking to and, and try to think what, what would, if I was them, what would I think about these people who are speaking to me online or coming to visit or coming to work in my place? and try and empathize with them in terms of how you behave and what your aspirations are for the whole undertaking. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess lastly, just to say um, congratulations for all being finalists in this uh, Global Citizenship category and, and congratulations to, to Stuart for being the, the winner. Uh, we've all had a wee nosy at the, uh, the trophy, which was lovely. Um, and yeah, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Now, Big thank you to our finalists um, uh, for taking their time to share their thoughts today. Uh, it was greatly appreciated. And and if you're like me, you're probably now at the stage in thinking, actually, I think I can do that. I think I can also make a difference. Um, so you ask yourself, mm, how can you go about it? Well, I've got the answer for you. If you want to get find out how you can be involved in this wonderful work, have a look at our website on www.scottishglobalhealth.org because you're there you can get the information in terms of how you can start your journey or even if you already started your journey but just be inspired about how you can link in, in terms of the different networks and all the other things that you might want to do so please have a look at the website you'll be getting all the details you need from there thank you thank you goodbye